Funding for Yale Cancer Answers is provided by Smilo Cancer Hospital. Welcome to Yale Cancer Answers with Dr. Anise Chagpar. Yale Cancer Answers features the latest information on cancer care by welcoming oncologists and specialists who are on the forefront of the battle to fight cancer. This week, it's a conversation about GYN cancers with Dr. Peter Dettino. Dr. Dettino is a professor of obstetrics, gynecology, and reproductive sciences at the Yale School of Medicine, where Dr. Chagpar is a professor of surgical oncology. So maybe we can start off by you telling us a little bit more about yourself and what it is you do. I'm a board-certified obstetrician gynecologist is how I started, and then I did a subspecialty training in gynecologic oncology almost 40 years ago. Uh, I'm currently board certified in both gynecologic oncology and obstetrics and gynecology. My practice is uh, pretty much gynecologic oncology, which is women with cancer that affects the uh, reproductive tract is what I see and treat. Not only do um, I do the surgeries for women with those diseases, but I also do the treatment and the treatment planning. I do administer chemotherapy. I uh, work with radiation oncologists um, uh, and the like. You know, the when we talk about women with gynecologic cancers, that always seems to me to be a rather large uh, bucket of, of cancers. Can you tell us a little bit more about the different types of cancers, the frequency with which you see them, and a little bit more about each of the types? Good question. So the, the most common gynecologic cancer is uh, uterine cancer, or the other name it goes by is endometrial cancer. Um, and there's roughly about 65,000 cases uh, in the U.S. a year of, of women that get uterine cancer. Um, uterine cancer is the one gynecologic malignancy that is increasing in incidence uh, every year, um, and that is thought to be due to the increasing uh, uh, rates of obesity in our society because uh, obesity is directly related to women getting endometrial uh, cancer. Um, if you look at the, the most common overall cancers that affect women today, it's number one, breast, number two, lung, and number three, colon. But what's going to happen in the next two to five years is that colon will fall out of the third spot because of all the colonoscopy screening that's taken place. And uterine cancer will be the third most common cancer that affects women overall after breast and lung cancer. Uh, following uh, endometrial cancer, ovarian cancer, which there's about 22,000 new cases a year in, in the U.S. Um, and um, unfortunately, without a screening test to diagnose this disease early, 85% of the ladies who actually present or walk into my office or any some specialist who treats uh, ovarian cancer will be in, in very advanced stages of stage three and stage four. Um, following endometrial cancer, we will have cervical cancer, roughly about uh, 14,000 cases to 12,000 cases a year. And then we have the rarer types, which would be vaginal cancer, uh, and vulva cancer, which affects the skin uh, on the outside. Uh, and that makes up the, the range of, of what we see as gynecologic oncologists. 
You know, it's so interesting that you say that endometrial cancer um, will likely take the third spot uh, instead of uh, colon cancer in large part due to the fact that we have good screening for uh, colon cancers. Are there good screening techniques for for the GYN cancers that you mentioned? Well, uh, if you look, uh, historically, the um, uh, the screening test that was devised, I think, in nine. 19- 19, the late 1930s, the PAP test uh, was one of the was the first screening test for for all of cancer, and that was designed to to uh, screen for cervical cancer because back in that time range, cervical cancer was the most common cancer that affected women. And over the years, the the PAP test has been refined, and um, now not only does it pick up cervical cancer, but most importantly, it picks up the precancerous. Uh, lesions that affect the cervix. And so what that means is that when somebody gets a precancerous lesion, uh, we can eradicate those in an office setting, either with cryotherapy, which is freezing it. We can use laser uh, to vaporize it, uh, or we can just simply excise the lesion. And that's why in this country, the incidence of cervix cancer went from the most common cancer to the 13th most uh, least likely of cancers to get for women because the pap test that women uh, in general access health care. So uh, a pap test uh, and a screening tool for cervical cancer has made a huge impact. If you look at the the, the rest of the world and developing, uh, developing countries who don't, um, for economic reasons, have access to pap testing, cervical cancer is either the number one or number two killer of women uh, worldwide, because there is an absence of a screening modality, and it's a it's a it's an absolute tragedy that we have a screening modality, but yet there it it re- remains one of the number one and number two killers of women worldwide. I mean, I guess the other thing that's um, fortunate for cervical cancer is that we also have a vaccine. That's correct, and that's beginning. Um, you know, to to make an impact when because I think the vaccines now are maybe ten to twelve years old. And so, uh, in addition to the pap test with the vaccine, um, this should be uh, and will be hopefully an eradicatable disease. Um, you know, there's still a, a, a lot of um, stumbling blocks in the, again in the developing world to the uptake of the vaccine. But in, in developing nations, there's been huge uptake in, in the in the vaccine, and this will make between the pap test and the the vaccine uh, will make an enormous impact. Uh, on eradication of cervical cancer. I'll give you an example that roughly maybe 15, 18 years ago, I used to do about 70 radical operations for cervical cancer a year. Currently now, I will do maybe one or two a year uh, is that's how good it, the, 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 the PAP test has been in identifying these precancerous lesions that are just so easily treatable um, that you you really don't see, you know, the, the people that we see here, um, you know, in my practice that, that have cervical cancer, usually they've either migrated here from countries that did not have PAP screening, uh, unfortunately, or some people have fallen through the, the healthcare uh, cracks in our system and they just either don't have money or they don't have access uh, to, to, to PAP testing, which is a, also a, a tragedy. What about for endometrial cancer? Do we have any kind of screening for that? 
No, there is no screening test that will detect endometrial cancer uh, today. Um, and uh, there's, there's work being uh, done on that. And um, one of the, the, the sort of pushbacks from the, the general community is that um, endometrial cancer, because women start having abnormal bleeding very early in the, in the course of the disease, uh, which leads most of them to see physicians uh, very early. So, probably about three quarters of the disease that sees that 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 we see today, because women they have bleeding, they come in, they have a, a biopsy of the uterus. That cancer is usually uh, detected in, in very early stage one, and um, the cure rates in stage one are relatively high, exceeding over uh, eighty-five to the low ninety percent uh, cure rates. That's fantastic. So it is. Uh, excuse me, one sec. But I'll, uh, what I, the caveat I would put to that is that, much like cervical cancer, where there is a well-defined precancerous lesion, we also know that there are well-defined precancerous lesions of the uterus called hyperplasia, and the time it takes to go from a mild hyperplasia to uterine cancer is roughly about eight to nine years. So, so it's slow growing, and so what that tells you is that if you could pick up these uh, precancerous lesions, those could be treated without surgery in most cases, usually with hormonal treatments, those can be reversed uh, and spare ladies the exposure to uh, hysterectomy, potential surgical complications, and also a loss of time from work, from family, and so forth. So there's a you know a lot of work being directed towards you know how can we detect these these precancerous states or the earliest cancer states, um, because again, if you can avoid a hysterectomy, uh, that would just be a home run, much like in cervical cancer. So tell us more about the screening that's being developed. Screening is it's kind of passed through a number of different stages, and one of the first things that had come on probably about 10, 12 years ago was the use of what we call a transvaginal uh, ultrasound, where an ultrasound probe is inserted into the vagina, goes directly against the cervix, and it allows you to measure very accurately in millimeters the thickness of the lining of the uterus. Okay, and we know for certain ages ranges of patients, how thick we would expect it to be, what would be considered normal and what would be considered abnormal. And it was hoped that, that the use of this would lead to um, uh, identifying precancerous uh, cases. But what we didn't find out with that those studies that were done was that ultrasound is, is not inexpensive, number one. And number two, we didn't know what interval do you do it. Like with your mammogram, do you do it every year? Do you do it every two years? Uh, and the same thing with the pap test. You know, now we've refined it so some women can get a pap, need a pap test every year. Some may use it every two to three years. Um, so the one of the tests that um, I, with my colleagues, have been working on is a, is a, a procedure called the uterine lavage. And what that means is when a woman comes in for her pap test, which literally takes 15 seconds to do, after we do the pap test, then we take about a teaspoon of uh, uh, saline, normal normal saline, um, and we put it inside the uterus. And then we, we rinse out the inside of the uterus, and we take that fluid, and we take it to our laboratory, and we look for specific um, 
different protein uh, markers that are indicative of these precancerous and early cancer states. And so far today, we've done this uterine lavage technique on uh, over 750 women, um, and we found this to be, uh, as a screening test, greater than 90% uh, sensitive and specific. Um, so we are uh, currently expanding that to increase our numbers, uh, and that's something that would, um, again, it's easy to do. It's very inexpensive, like a pap test. Uh, and it's can pick up these kind of precancerous conditions. That's amazing. It sounds like that could really have a huge impact for uterine cancer. When do you think that might become something that we can see in regular clinical practice? It probably, you know, the the way the way these are going now, uh, it would it possibly could be eighteen to twenty four months. Um, you know, depending upon you know, a lot of external factors and how soon it takes to, um, you know, accrue this many patients uh, to get your application to the FDA for approval and so forth. But it, it's very, very encouraging. Fantastic. Well, we're going to take a short break for a medical minute. Please stay tuned to learn more about the care of GYN cancers with my guest, Dr. Peter Dottino. Funding for Yale Cancer Answers comes from Smilo Cancer Hospital where their one-of-a-kind sexuality, intimacy, and menopause program combines medical and psychological interventions for women who experience sexual dysfunction after cancer. SmiloCancerHospital.org Over 230,000 Americans will be diagnosed with lung cancer this year, and in Connecticut alone there will be over 2,700 new cases. More than 85% of lung cancer diagnoses are related to smoking, and quitting, even after decades of use, can significantly reduce your risk of developing lung cancer. Each day, patients with lung cancer are surviving thanks to increased access to advanced therapies and specialized care. New treatment options and surgical techniques are giving lung cancer survivors more hope than they have ever had before. Clinical trials are currently underway at federally designated comprehensive cancer centers, such as the BATTLE-2 trial at Yale Cancer Center and Smilo Cancer Hospital, to learn if a drug or combination of drugs based on personal biomarkers can help to control non-small cell lung cancer. More information is available at YaleCancerCenter.org. You're listening to Connecticut Public Radio. Welcome back to Yale Cancer Answers. This is Dr. Anise Chagpar, and I'm joined tonight by my guest, Dr. Peter Dottino. We're talking about the care of patients with GYN cancers and diagnostic and screening tools. And right before the break, Dr. Dottino was telling us about how pap smears have really um, revolutionized the care for cervical cancer and some of his recent work looking at lavage, which can be done at the same time as a pap smear that can screen for endometrial cancer, which is set to become the third most common cancer in women. Um, so Dr. Dottino, the other cancer that women often talk about and think about in terms of GYN cancers is ovarian cancer. Can you tell us a little bit more about ovarian cancer in terms of its prognosis um, and uh, you know, kind of how it presents. It's often called the silent cancer. Is that right? You know, that's it is called that, but it turns out um, that it's actually not a silent cancer. And and by that I mean the following: 
it turns out that extensive studies that have been done um, show that all women will have symptoms for at least three to four months. Um, and those symptoms, they usually report to their doctor or they, they feel that those um, the symptoms are with menopause or with aging. These would be symptoms of, say, what we call early satiety, so that when you eat something, you have a couple of bites, but you feel full. Sometimes it could be urinary frequency, where you think, maybe I'm getting a little older, I could have a urinary infection. Sometimes it could be symptoms of where it's a little difficult to buckle your pants, and your, your pants feel very tight. And or it should be lower back pain or, or pain with the, the intercourse, sexual intercourse. Um, and those symptoms could go sometimes with either urinary infection, uh, GI inflammation, or many other things. And most often, either patients don't think that they possibly could be developing ovary cancer. And a lot of times, even their primary uh, care physicians, whether that be a primary care OBGYN or a primary health care provider, don't think that these could be related to ovary cancer. So, and because of the, the delay, 85% um, of the ladies who actually finally make it in to see myself or anybody else in, in who's a gynecologic oncologist will either be in stage three or stage four. And at that stage, actually, the medical student can establish the diagnosis because the, the stomach area, the abdominal area is swollen with fluid. Um, and patients are unable to eat. Uh, their legs could be swollen. So it's, at that point, it's very easy to make a diagnosis. And that course then usually follows some kind of an ultra-radical surgery uh, procedure to remove all of the disease, and then either six or eight months of chemotherapy, um, and then uh, what we call now maintenance or consolidation therapy to uh, keep the disease away. Um, and so even in the best of circumstances, most people with advanced disease, unfortunately, will relapse even after having ultra-radical surgery, six or eight months of chemotherapy. Um, so it's a difficult disease. But what we do know that about 8% of ovarian cancer is picked up by mistake, where somebody may have a gallbladder uh, operation and they look at the ovary and they see there's something abnormal or they may go for an MRI for back pain, they may see a, a growth on the ovary. And well, we do know that if ovary cancer is picked up in stage one, the cure rates are over 90% long-term survivors. That's greater than 10 years. So what we've been struggling with in the field is to develop a screening tool that would allow us to pick it up in early stage, because in early stage, cure is possible. Cure is remotely possible uh, in advanced disease unfortunately, even today. And, and so what has been your progress in terms of developing screening tools for ovarian cancer? Can you tell us more about whether there are any bright lights on the horizon there? Sure. The, um, you know, we, got a, we had a blood test that was developed, and it's called a CA-125. And that was a blood test that, uh, again, is about 25 years old now, but it was one of the first markers that was found uh, to be in the blood for ovary cancer. And we thought that that would be a whole run. But what, unfortunately, we found out as the test went into widespread use is that there were many other things besides cancer that would make the test elevated, such as uterine fibroids, 
uh, endometriosis. These are benign conditions that can affect women. Any kind of inflammation in, in the, the body or the pelvic area, like diverticular disease, could elevate this so that it had very um, it had no value, it turns out, as a screening test for, for, for ovarian cancer uh, at, at all, unfortunately. So um, the other thing that, um, again, as we discussed in the, the, the first segment, the uter- using the uterine lavage, what we found is two things have happened. is one through um, multi-scale genomics, we're able to demonstrate, my, not myself, but in the oncologic community, that ovary cancer, the majority of ovary cancer, actually does not originate in the ovary but it originates in the end of the fallopian tube, the part of the fallopian tube that sits over the um, ovary and collects an egg. And so that portion of the fallopian tube, it develops what they call as a stick lesion, which is actually a precancerous lesion, which has been estimated by mathematical modeling to take about six years until it turns into cancer. Now, when we were doing our uterine lavage for screening for uterine cancer, we noticed by chance that we were we were actually picking up cells from the fallopian tube that would fall into the uterus and that would give us a clue. And um, we have now done this test uh, and been able to detect early ovary cancer uh, utilizing this test. So we think uh, that it will be a combined test, uterine lavage, that will allow us to detect early endometrial, and early ovarian cancer. So we're, we're very, very excited about it. It's kind of what we call the, the holy grail in this field because early detection, it becomes a game changer, absolute game changer. And it certainly sounds exciting. The one question that I would have is, it sounds like the test for ovarian cancer is really dependent upon those cells dropping into the the uterus from the fallopian tube, do all cells do that, or would you miss some? Well, that's what that's what we're 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 trying to work that out now. But we do know that there is um, peristalsis uh, in the muscular uh, length of the tube because the tube it has what they call it. The end of the tube has got these fimbria, which are tiny like fingers that sit on top of the ovary, so that when a woman ovulates and an egg burst out of the ovary, the fimbria pick up the egg and put it into the fallopian tube, and then the muscles, the peristaltic motion of the tube brings the egg down into the uterus so that it can be fertilized. And so what we theorize that those same precancerous cells are just moved along and dropped into the tube. Now, will that be everybody? You know, that we will have to work out as we go along with, with our test. But um, you know, so it's it's something to to be seen. But it is that is a distinct possibility that uh, you know we're definitely picking up these precancerous cells. There's no question about that. Yeah, and I, I mean, one would one would surmise that picking up some of them, even if you don't pick up all of them, would still be uh, a real boon um, for a cancer where there really isn't any other screening test available. No question about that. So one of the other ways we're approaching this is the same techniques that we use to analyze the uterine lavage fluid. When we take the test, the lavage for a woman right now, we also take a blood sample. 
And interestingly, what we find is the same signal that we're picking up in the lavage, we can pick up in the blood. So it may be that the test is done in combination where we do a lavage plus a blood sample. Um, you know, so that way it, it, it might cover for those patients that where the cells actually don't fall into the uterus. And so, um, so now we have a good screening test for cervical cancer. We potentially have one for uterine cancer and maybe even ovarian cancer. The other two cancers that you mentioned at the top of the show were vulvar and vaginal cancers. Correct. Anything on the horizon for screening in those two cancers? Well, for vulvar cancer, which is, is really a skin cancer, and it's on the, the external part. And so the most important thing for that is, is going to be education, and it's education of not only patients but primary care providers. Because when a woman complains that the typical complaints for vulvar cancer are itching, dryness, cracking skin, um, and those are just often ignored where somebody will order, say, go to the drugstore and put on some cortisone cream and that will make it better. But the, the key thing is that if somebody has these symptoms and they're lasting greater than a month, you should see a specialist. And and, and we will then look at their skin with a microscope called a, a colposcope. And more often than not, we will always take a, a small skin biopsy to make sure that there is no malignancy because if all our cancer is caught early, it, it becomes also curable. And so, you know, the most cases we see are advanced, uh, the advanced cases are where women have lived for years on these salves, creams, and so forth that they just keep getting given. Um, and nobody's thought, well, wait a minute, you know, this, this, there's got to be a reason for this. And the, the emphasis really is to, to take a biopsy. And primary care doctors are more than capable of, of, of you know, taking the biopsy. Because it's just looking at the skin, and they're, they're, the, the lesions are very easy to identify. Vaginal cancers now are also going to be picked up with um, a pap test also, because uh, the pap test can pick up the same kinds of precancerous cells that we see in cervical cancer can also occur in vaginal cancer. So the pap test can be very effective uh, in that way also. So, um, you know, there's, there's, it's really a matter of getting people you know, to understand their bodies and always to ask that question or, you know, what I tell my patients, for specifically for ovary cancer, if they have this constellation of symptoms of early satiety, little bit of abdominal swelling or discomfort or whatever, and if it lasts pains or discomforts that last more than four weeks, you go to your doctor and you say, prove to me that I don't have ovary cancer rather than just continue to live with the the symptoms get multiple urine cultures and and the like, and two months later you find out that the symptoms were really of a developing cancer, which is unfortunate. Yeah, I think that you know very often those symptoms, right, a feeling of bloatedness, uh, uh, you know, a little bit of urinary frequency, a little bit of abdominal pain, they can be so many other things, and many Correct. patients think that the last thing on their mind is that this could be an ovarian cancer, particularly if they don't have a family history, they don't have a genetic mutation, um, and, and so tend to put that at the bottom of the list. 
right, where we need to move it up. Because if we think about it, right, the genetic mutations, particularly the, the BRCA genes, those are going to account for roughly about 15 to 18% of people who get ovary cancer. So that means 85% of these are going to people going to be in people without a family history, without a genetic mutation that we currently can identify. Um, and so, uh, you know, it, it behooves us. You know, if, again, it's like when we all taught our medical students, if somebody has pelvic pain, you know, give me a differential diagnosis. And not three things, but give me 15 things, because if you don't think about it as a possibility, you'll never find it. Dr. Peter Dottino is a professor of obstetrics, gynecology, and reproductive sciences at the Yale School of Medicine. If you have questions, the address is canceranswers at yale.edu, and past editions of the program are available in audio and written form at yalecancercenter.org. We hope you'll join us next week to learn more about the fight against cancer here on Connecticut Public Radio. Funding for Yale Cancer Answers is provided by Smilo Cancer Hospital.